here we are again. It's been a while, but Aspel Kirtley is back. This is episode 82. Welcome, welcome to episode 82 of Ask Paul Kirtley and it's good to be back doing this question and answer series and I'll talk at the end about how you get your answer or at least your question and hopefully my answer featured on this show but let's get into the questions. I've got some lined up here already. First one. Hello, uh, I just want to, to say I love your work Thank very you. much. And uh, my question is, uh, will you ever write a book? Uh, do you plan to write a book sometime in the future? Okay, thank you. Okay, and that was via the SpeakPipe voice recorder on my site, uh, and that was from Paul. Not me, by the way, I'm not leaving myself messages, particularly not given the subjects. Now, I feel like recently, as I record this in August 2021, like I've been banging on about my book for months and months and months. And to be fair to Paul that left that message, that was recorded back, um, I think about six to eight months ago. Okay, I have not done an Ask Paul Kirtley since October 2020. Um, and one of the reasons has been COVID, of course, that's caused all sorts of strains. And actually I talked about that on the last Ask Paul Kirtley. I'm not gonna go back into that. Um, I think everybody's pretty much sick of hearing about COVID and lockdowns and restrictions. But one of the other things that's been going on with me is my book, Wilderness, Axe Skills and Campcraft, which came out in May in North America and June in pretty much the rest of the world, including the UK, which is where I'm based. So um, I'm very proud of this. It's very nice um, in terms of its production value. It's a hardback. It's very well printed on um, very good quality paper, lots of nice images, um, or at least you know, they've done a good job of presenting my images well. Most of the images in the book, most of the photographs of photos that I've taken. And then the rest are ones that people who work with me or some students, but largely people who are on courses with me or trips with me who have, who have taken them. Ray Goodwin took some of the photos in there as well, because of course we've done plenty of canoe trips. So yes, I, I have been writing a book. And so it's a little bit unfair to Paul because I've ramped up the promotion of this in recent months, but it's not like this has not been on the cards for some time. I was first approached about writing this in 2017. Um, it was around about the time I was doing a trip on the French River and I'd also done a trip on the Missanibe with, with, uh, with clients, with students, if you like. So um, I remember where I was because it was one of those situations where I'm traveling, I've only got my phone to deal with emails and I'm trying not to be on my phone much because I'm in some beautiful places and it was just a day in between trips and there was this email inquiring as to whether or not I'd be interested in writing a book based on my Woodcrafter course. Now. This book has ended up being 
um, somewhat different to the syllabus of the Woodcrafter, but I think in a good way. And um, it brings in elements that we, you know, if you're in the woods for a week, and I say this about my online courses, if you're, if you're in the woods for a week on a field course, there's certain things which you can delve deeply into, a lot of detail, you can get coaching from the instructors, etc., etc. But clearly you are bounded by being in that one week. Um, if you're here in the summer, you can't suddenly then look at some winter skills and, and vice versa. So one of the great things about um, recorded material, whether it's video courses or whether it's books, is that you can bring a whole host of things in and look at different aspects of the same skill sets. And so I'm very pleased that, that um, we've managed to do that with this book. And it was literally about a three-year project putting this together um, based on having about 10 years worth of photographs. So there's six chapters in here just for those of you that are interested, and I know some of you have already got it, but people keep asking me about the book that's just an example that audio question so I thought I would mention it um, I think many of the people who listen to this or watch this on YouTube would be interested in the book it'd be right up your street um, six big chapters um, selecting the correct tools for the job caring for your tools everyday axe techniques felling limbing and sectioning carving techniques and projects and the sixth one is woodland campcraft which again is a big uh, chapter 50 pages on woodland campcraft towards the end and to be honest with you there's even more that i would have liked to have got into the book just on woodland campcraft but of course i had 208 pages um, and i had to cram as much in there as possible we got 45,000 words uh, 640 photographs there's a lot of materials a lot of information here there's a lot of detail and um, lots of step-by-step -step sequences whether it's things like sharpening your tools so we do have some knife work even though it's um, wilderness axe skills but the campcraft of course requires you to use a knife and the knife work in the book is really supportive of the wider scheme of the book. Um, we've got things on sharpening curved tools like uh, spoon knives and, and whatnot in there as well. I say we, um, because of course, nobody writes a book on their own. There was a designer, there were two editors involved in terms of just sharpening up um, my language. Um, not that my writing is bad, but it's always good. Two, two sets of eyes are better than one. Some of that you might be familiar with from my blog because some of the material is based on material I wrote from my blog and many people wished to see some of that as a book. You know, it was one of the reasons people asked me about whether or not I'll write a book because there's so much material on my site. Putting that into a nice little package of a book is something that many people have looked for. Um, so again, you know, we've got sequences that I've taken um, but then we've also got photos from trips in Sweden, canoe trips in, in the Lake District, um, in the UK. There's lots and lots of stuff in here. So there's lots of good instructional stuff, lots of good instructional material, but then there's also some contextual photographs from trips and camps and, and whatnot as well. Um, a few knots and other bits of useful additional material at the end, lots of pot hangers and cranes and things that will basically get you by in pretty much any situation you find yourself, whatever type of terrain you're in, as long as you've got access to some wood, making some camp furniture, etc. So 
lots and lots in there. I crammed as much in there as possible. Um, it's published by Schiffer Publishing. It's a US publishing house. It's available all over the world, um, certainly in North America. I know there's quite a lot of people who listen and watch in the US and Canada. Yes, you can get that book locally. Um, you'll be able to find it on Amazon, of course, um, but other local bookstores will sell it. Um, also available in the UK and Europe, Australia, many other parts of the world. It's even on Amazon Japan. Um, also, I sell the book directly at wildernessaxskills.com wildernessaxskills, wildernessaxskills.com. I sell the book directly at just the cover price, which is £24.99. And if you order directly from me, you will get a signed copy. As long as you're willing to pay for the shipping wherever you are in the world, including you can get track shipping or just economy shipping or whatever you want. Economy shipping in some places, not others. Um, but you can get track sh shipping anywhere in the world. Um, tracked insured shipping. I'll package it up nicely. I'll write something in there for you. Um, I'll certainly sign it, but if you want me to write a, an inscription in there, you can put that in the order form when you order. So that's my book, um, available everywhere. There were 5,000 copies printed initially. They have been selling pretty fast. We are talking about doing a reprint. So if you're thinking about getting it, um, I'm not trying to sort of bum rush you into buying it, but if you're thinking about getting it, um, get one when you see one because we are going to need to reprint it, I think, um, fairly soon. And that hopefully that doesn't cause delays, but um, that's up to the publisher as well. It's not me that's financing that. That's the publisher that finances that stuff. So that's a publisher's decision. I've got a reasonable stock of books at the moment. If you want one, you can get one from me or jump, jump into your local bookstore, ask them if they can order it. Um, I'll put the ISBN in the... Uh, in the description below as well as links to some of the Amazon shops and as well as a link to my um, site that's dedicated to this. And you can read reviews of it there as well as lots of reader reviews as well as some um, reviews that other people have done online of the book. So um, don't take my word for it that it's good. Um, you can see other people's words as well there. So thanks for the questions about the books. Hopefully then now more people know about the book. I do feel like I've been banging on about it for a while. Not as much as Ray Goodwin perhaps talks about his book, but um, <laughs> those of you that know Ray will know what I'm talking about. Although to be fair to Ray, I did an event with Ray, a course with Ray earlier in the year, and he forgot to bring any books with him. And there were students there who wanted them. So, you know, um, we always try and supply them to people. It's nice for people to get them directly and have a signed copy. But yeah, it's, a, it's widely available. And am I going to write any more books is probably the next question. Possibly. Um, this took a long time to gestate. The economics of writing niche books like this, as nicely produced as it is, um, I'm not selling, you know, hundreds of thousands of these. Um, I'm not like Dan Brown or somebody. Um, I can't make a living from writing books, so it has to be something that augments other things that I do. But I do have some things that I would like to put into book format as well that I think some of the bits on my blog, of course, on my site at paulcutley.co.uk, but also there's some other ideas that I've got that I've been thinking about for many years that I would like to put into a book because there's, there's a few things that I didn't have when I was coming up and learning uh, many of the bushcraft skills and, and bits of knowledge. And I, there's a few areas where I think actually a book on that Con combined this and this and this aimed at people who are interested in bushcraft and survival would be very useful so I've got a few ideas like that who knows maybe in five years time I'll be talking about book number two but anyway thanks for your interest thanks for everyone who's bought it so far shameless book plug um, I 
did mention it on some of my axe videos recently, like axe sharpening, and I said, well, I don't normally sell things on my YouTube channel very often. And there are a few people said, well, actually, you should promote your stuff more um, because you give away so much stuff for free. You should occasionally, the things that you do have to sell, you should push them a bit more. Okay, so I'm pushing my book. There, buy it. It's good. <laughs> and it makes a nice Christmas present for other people who haven't got it as well, if you've already got one. All right. <laughs> Next one. I know that was a bit self-indulgent, but hey, I can only do that once every four or five years. Um, okay, what else have we got here? Another audio question. This one is from Peter. Hi, Paul. Thank you for all the work you do. My question relates to Swedish fastics. Uh, I've collected many of the years and there are some I simply cannot get any far spark off or whatsoever. I've watched numerous videos, particularly yours, and whatever I do, whatever I try to do, there is no spark I can generate off some of the sticks. Where there's one called Light My Fire, I think, and it's just beautiful, it generates sparks. I'd be interested to know whether if I gave you the ones I can't get to light, you would be able to get them to fire up. Um, or is it something I'm doing fundamentally wrong? Uh, the name is Peter Budden, B-U-D-D-E-N. All right, Peter, that's a good question. And it's a question that is um, one that crops up uh, fairly commonly, um, particularly in the context of students having different varieties of fire steels on their person when they come on courses. And it's not necessarily something we ask people to do, but these days people tend to often have their own already. Um, you mentioned Light My Fire, and that's one of the makes that I prefer personally. Um, Strike Fire is another one, which is a, a British brand, um, and they are similarly uh, effective, I find, as the, uh, the Light My Fires. Now, some people will say they prefer a softer uh, ferro rod or Swedish fire steel. Um, personally, I prefer them that are a bit harder, and by a bit harder, I mean case in point strike fire or light my fire that's what i think works best for for me the softer ones i find harder to get sparks from some people would say that they prefer that um, personally in my experience both of me using them as well as students using them i would say generally people find them harder to use and it will largely be down to the composition of the steel the fire steel that you've got that's causing you the problem particularly if you've watched my video and other people's videos about how to use them i mean it's not that complicated to use them so if you're finding it hard to create sparks from them it's unlikely to be something that you're doing um particularly if you can get sparks of ones and and not the others uh, the the difference there is the different types of steel right your techniques working on ones that work um the other thing that can be, cause a problem though uh, and can be a bit of a spanner in the, in, the, in the works is if you're using one that works very well with the proprietary striker that comes with it and then you're using one that doesn't work very well with that proprietary striker that comes with it, it can sometimes be the striker that's not very good if it doesn't have enough of a burr or a nice right angle on it that will catch and, and bite into the ferro rod. Um, that can cause it to not work very well. So do try, like if you've got a, you know, your, your Light My Fire, for example, and the striker that works with that, if you're using a striker um, or, or your knife, whatever you're using to create good sparks, try that if it's not what you're trying, try it with the ones that don't work very well, because it could be the striker. But I would say more often than not, it's the composition 
um, and the, the softness or hardness of the uh, ferro rod and I find that the cheap Chinese if you like because um, a lot of them are made in China a lot of the cheap ones um, don't work very well um, that's no denigration to you know Chinese manufacturing my books printed in China you know iPhones are made in China there's lots of stuff that's very well made in China but um, I find some of the cheap ferro rods just don't work very well and I would agree so um, what else would I say about that I'm just I'm sort of just running through my mind there some sort of pictures some recall of students struggling sometimes the smaller ones um, like the scout models are a bit more fiddly to use because they're they're a narrower diameter they've got a, a sharper radius curve if you like um, it's harder to get a good purchase on them because they curve away more sharply from the steel uh, that your steel striker that can sometimes cause people to struggle personally I don't like the little scout models the thinner smaller models that um, like my fire make and, and other people make I like the full-size so-called army model now some people really like the big kind of truncheon sized ones I know uh, Pathfinder School, Dave Canterbury School sells some other people sell them you can buy them and some of those are made from really good material you know you get some really great sparks off them nice similarly good sparks that you get off the off the ones that I like this the light my fire and the strike fire similar hardness I, I don't own any of those personally actually I own one student left it on a course and I, it actually fell out in one of our vehicles we don't know whose it was it fell out of their kit and nobody ever claimed it and um, so we've got one in in our kit somewhere but I don't personally use them because I find them a bit heavy and clunky um, for my pocket I like one in my pocket all the time and a lot of my kit is set up even though I'm teaching in the woods a fair amount a lot of my kit the way that it's set up and the way that I just use it even if I'm in a static camp for a week is is it as if I'm on a trip right so a lot of my personal equipment is just set up as it is for when I when I trip I just use the same system so um, I, I find them too heavy for hiking, I find them too clunky, the bigger ones, for canoeing. Um, that's not to say they aren't a valuable thing to have um, in a survival kit or whatnot, in a vehicle or wherever, you, but for me personally, I find the Army models, like the original model, to be the best, and the two that we've mentioned are, for me, the best ones that work consistently and last a long time. You know, I'm using them quite a lot for just living in the woods as well as teaching doing trips etc etc and so yeah I would say it isn't what you're doing check that it's not the striker the striker can make a big difference even with a good ferro rod um, but generally the make or break thing is the ferro rod or the, the fire steel all right next question so this is a question from Instagram and this is from Wandering Woodsman Trev Carter and he says hoping this gets to you as for some reason unable to comment on YouTube yes is the answer to the question of bringing back Aspore Kirtley so this is from a little while ago um, around the time I was asking whether or not I should bring it back and then of course I recorded one um, and then I haven't done one since so there, there were more questions than I could answer in the previous one which is why there's some left but I think this question is still um, a very valid one um, although you are although you answer questions from viewers and watchers you also highlight the philosophy philosophy of bushcraft and what bushcraft actually is ie not kit 
tools etc but the understanding and knowledge of nature and how to use it since listening to your videos and podcasts my understanding of philosophy have completely changed regarding bushcraft my question to you would be since beginning your bushcraft and outdoorsman journey in your adult life has your philosophy towards the subject changed many thanks for all that you put out there etc thank you trev so has my bushcraft philosophy or my philosophy towards the subject changed um i feel i feel like my understanding of the subject has deepened i know that's not answering your question um so i think almost certainly it has changed whether or not i can enunciate what that change has been um i don't know i i I think at times I've been influenced by others in terms of how to think, um, how to frame the subject, how to think about the subject, how to think about teaching the subject. And certainly in my earlier um, days of being on the teaching side, um, of course, I was working with some pretty strong characters and um, you, you pick up on what, how they want you to do it. Um, what they want you to do, what they, they don't want you to do, what they, they want you to emphasize, etc. Um, but over time you develop your own experience, you develop your own experience with teaching, you develop your own experience with spending time out in nature on your own, and um, you spend time journeying, having experiences, good and bad, tough, tough times, great times, um, you know, horrible, grotty, rainy, cold days and beautiful sunsets and wonderful evenings and peace and all of those things so you have that whole mix of experience and in amongst that you have your interactions with um, the natural world both in terms of visual and oral but also particularly in the context of bushcraft we're talking about you know that kind of kinesthetic kind of making and doing and using and touching things um, and I think the more you get into it the, the deeper your deep the deeper you are kind of raveled in with all of that and the more it's got its roots in in you and so I, I would say almost certainly compared to now 20 years ago when I was first embarking on getting involved and um, moving more towards the teaching side as well starting to um, I would say back then my understanding and therefore my philosophy was more superficial than it is now because um, I've continued to, to grow and learn um, many people talk about oh you know he used to work with so-and-so he used to work with this person he's and yeah you know credits where credit where credits due I worked with some great people and some very knowledgeable people and some big names in the bushcraft world but I also I've been doing my own thing for a long time now. I've been doing my own thing for a lot longer than I worked with any of those mentors that I had in my early days. And I think they set me right in many respects and some of those philosophies still underpin, but then I've built my whole own um, ethos on top of that. And I think um, I've grown to be more accepting of other opinions and other approaches um, I think I've learned to be more flexible I think I've learned to be more comfortable about what I do and don't know and I think um, 
the other thing, while my thing is centered on, at its core, skills for really wild places, that to me was what drew me to bushcraft in the first place and it's still what centers. It's almost like a, a touch point. Um, and this might sound like a bit of a criticism, but I, I do see um, in certain areas, and I'm not like I'm not trying to single anybody out here. I, I really, I'm genuinely not. But I see certain things where they overcomplicate things, or they add so many layers of safety around things um, that work if you're in your backyard or in a scout camp or, or what have you, but just don't work in the context of you've just rocked up at a place you don't know on a hike or a canoe trip or what have you and you have to you know you have to do things you have to make them work you have to get camp set up or split wood or whatever it is there's a certain way that you have to do things to to be effective and to get things done in a certain period of time while still being as safe as possible that informs how I do things even when I'm not in those situations um, I don't kind of then I'm less, I have a less of a tendency to kind of get distracted and pulled away in, in tangential directions or, or differential directions that are very situation dependent. The other, the other thing as well, again, is I try and make sure that I teach in places where I can teach the skills in the way that I want to teach them or the way that they should be teach, taught, the way that I was taught them. Because uh, again, what I don't want to do, and, and I've seen it a few times, is people working in very constrained areas, either quite small pieces of land, um, or that they're, that they're very limited in the range of species that are available there, for example. Um, and that means then if they want to teach a particular skill, they've got to go and find a suboptimal uh, piece of uh, wood for example material you know fiber for cordage or whatever it is that isn't really um, what you would use to make that thing now of course don't get me wrong you want to be able to apply your skills in the many many different ways as possible and equally you don't want to be stumped by saying oh um, I've only ever lit my fire with birch bark and sparks onto birch bark and therefore I must find birch bark otherwise I can't light a fire. And I've seen students do that. I've seen students walk past perfectly good materials for lighting fires in search of birch bark for example. Um, and I think that's some of the way that your thinking has to evolve is being open to what's available. Um, and I think for, for me, I like to have places to teach where I can teach, say, say example, making withies, yeah, twisting up fibrous um, osiers, fibrous stems and saplings and shoots um, and willow and hazel work really well for this, of course. And those are the ones that I want to take students to and say, okay, we're gonna make withies with this. But then, of course, we're going to experiment with some other materials. Like, how does birch work? How does sweet chestnut work? How does um, how does ash work? Not that I would typically use a sycamore would be a better example. You know, can we with it some sycamore saplings? Because you know they come up like weeds where they come up. Um, 
And so you've got the grounding in the core skill of something that actually you know, okay, this works. A little bit like the question with fire steels. It's like, well, if you know that it's your technique's working on one that is good, if it's not working on another one, then it's probably not your technique that's the problem. And it's the same with bow drill. I try and get people to work on their technique with one material first, but one that we know is consistently good, and also one that people can find widely, like alder or willow. It's not necessarily the easiest, you know, people go, oh, you know, ivy is fantastic. Um, but then how often do you find dead ivy in the right condition when you want to make a bow drill set? Um, it's less likely, uh, particularly in some parts of the world, you just don't find ivy at all, but you will find willow and you will find alder. And then of course you'll find birch and spruce and pine. And so my point is that get your technique good and this is a philosophy I apply to myself as well as to students, get your technique good with something that you know works either from your own experience or from other people's experience who you trust and then try other things and so I like to teach in places where I can teach the core material in the way that I want to teach it and the way that I feel it should be taught but then also have the breadth of materials for people to try other things and work with other materials as well and I think as soon as you move away from that, you start you start distorting the, the core of the, the, the sort of foundation of the way that you're teaching the subject. And so for me, that's really important. And that's become more important, I think, um, the more I the more I've taught over the years. And I think the other the flip side of that is I think you need to be also extremely flexible in your application. Um, and that requires you to train with lots of different materials try different routes for bindings, try different uh, fibres for cordage, try different woods for bow drill, etc, etc, etc. So that when you do go to somewhere, when you're journeying, and that can just be wandering through a landscape on any particular day, or it could be making a two-week canoe trip in Canada, and you're on a portage, or you're in camp, or what have you, you're able to, rather than fixate on in a task-oriented way, which is a very sort of Western business work-oriented way of thinking to kind of go, right, I want to achieve A, therefore I know I need B and C, and I must now go and find those. It's kind of the way that guys go shopping, right? It's like, I know I need this, this, and this, I'm going to go in a shop, I can get that, get that, get that, and I'm, go I'm gone. Um, and th there are some times when that's absolutely what you need. Um, but there are other times when you need to be open to what's available and be flexible in how you combine and apply things and that comes down to your practice um, before you get into that situation. And So I think to me as well, that's as my experience has grown, both in terms of journeying as well as teaching and getting that feedback from students of what's been useful and then coming back on more courses and what they want to learn next and what they was useful from previous courses, that's kind of deepened my understanding of what's at that core and what it should be. So absolutely, you know, I haven't talked a lot about tools there, but yeah, tool use is important. I've written a whole book pretty much on tool use and, and wood and materials there, right? And that's a, I think that's one thing, if we need one thing to differentiate bushcraft. I don't like calling bushcraft an outdoor activity. Um, I think it's deeper than that, and that's part of my philosophy. I think it's, it's like the mycelium of the fungi in the forest, yeah? It's just there in amongst everything. and and. For me, the bushcraft is there in amongst everything that I do outdoors. It's not like something that I separate, like mountain biking or even canoeing. Like I'm not always canoeing. Yeah? I am when I'm in a canoe, but I'm not always canoeing. It's made me look at water in a different way. Even when I'm hiking and I come to a river or I come to a, pit, a body of water, my view of that water is different to 
how it would have been before because I have more experience of water and seeing the world from the perspective of the water and interacting with the water but you know I'm cycling or four-wheel driving or shooting or, or whatever you know on a range that's more of a contained activity excuse me whereas for me bushcraft goes deeper than that it has its tendrils and everything pretty much all the time I, I find it hard to switch off noticing the plants and the trees and the resources and the fungi and the animal tracks etc etc so um, that's kind of my part of my underlying philosophy and I think that's become stronger uh, uh, over the years and um, that realization that it's that integral to my perception of the world and it's also very stark when I go to places that I'm not so familiar with so in recent years um, not so much in the last 18 24 months but in recent years I've been to Australia quite a few times I've got some family connections in Australia um, and it was a place that I'd not really spent much time before and when I first went there even though I feel very comfortable here in the woods in in the UK and pretty much in the northern temperate put me into you know boreal in Canada boreal in northern Scandinavia I know those places I know the species there I know the environments pretty well in terms of what are the common widespread species what can we do with them what can we not do with them etc what we're likely to find where in what types of terrain habitats because I've spent quite a lot of time there then I go to somewhere like Australia and you go to the woods there go to the bush or the, the forest you know eucalyptus forest or what have you and you just feel like a complete baby because you don't recognize very much at all and then you're starting to relearn but I find that really thrilling to go at that because it's you, you learn a lot quite quickly when you don't know very much and that's quite thrilling um, but again that makes me realize how integral the knowledge of nature and the bushcraft is um, to my to my world and that's just become stronger over the years for sure so um, people say I'm more relaxed than I used to be people say that I'm more forgiving than I used to be I think that's partly some of the people that I spend time with now as opposed to some of the people I spent time with in the past um, I think that also comes with maturity I think it comes with uh, being comfortable in your own skin um, I think it also you know being comfortable in your own skin you know doing this sort of thing if I look at videos I made eight nine years ago I'm so wooden and I'm, I don't want to give anything away um, and also I'm very guarded I'm very wooden and I think I'm more open now and I'm more open to criticism you have to be if you put stuff on YouTube um, and but I think that's a healthy thing and I think how you react to it and yeah okay I'm gonna get annoyed sometimes people say stupid stuff people say ignorant things people say things without thinking about it much you know I spend a lot of my time thinking about this material and um, thinking about bushcraft think about how to present it think about how to teach it um, what's important what's not important um, and talking with other people that have also got good experience and that you, whose experience you respect and whose intelligence you respect and then you get some person who comes along and um, just makes some ignorant comments and on a good day I'm kind of accepting and I'm like okay well this person's coming from that perspective and okay let's um, let's see if we can help um, but equally I'm not here to change everybody's mind and there are certain things that you know are, are, are pretty much 
universal truths, like you know, hypothermia or firelighting or, or lots of things. Like they either work or they don't. You either you know you either succumb to hypothermia or you don't. You either, you get your fire going or you don't. And it's like it's not down to someone's opinion or your rational thinking about you know, oh, you know, I shouldn't have got f hypothermia because I had my jumper on. It doesn't matter. It's just the physics of the situation, yeah? And it's the same with YouTube, you know. Some comments are worthwhile and they're valid and different perspectives are important and they're flexible um, and we should be flexible around thinking about that. Other things are just like, well, that's the way it is, you know. That's, And I think I've learned better where to draw that line um, in terms of whether to be, you know, argumentative and adamant about something, or otherwise just to go, yeah, whatever you, whatever you want to do, um, and um, I think that's important to know where those boundaries are, and and that's important for people who trust your judgment as well. So, um, some of that was more about me than the philosophy, but I think it's, it's so intertwined. Um, you know, one of the things that's come out for me as well is that. I think there's a lot of stuff bandied around under the banner of environmentalism that doesn't make sense from the perspective that you gain through bushcraft and I won't I'm not going to go down that route right now and then there are other things about the modern world which um, are clearly you know very much in line with more of an environmental perspective and environmentalist perspective um, and also I think nature's complicated it's complex and the world is complex and I think one of the things you get through bushcraft is an understanding of that or at least a, an intuitive understanding of that you're not necessarily able to analyze it um, but I think increasingly people want simple solutions to everything like how do I not get wet? You know, I look at some of the questions that I get and some of them I don't answer because you, you, I, you can't answer them. It's like, how do I not get wet? It's like, well, stay indoors. You know, it's like if you go outside, you're going to get wet. Um, you know, sometimes people want to make things too simple or they just want, you know, a great example, and I've probably mentioned it before, um, Cliff Jacobson, who's been on my podcast, um, I saw him in an interview years ago and he was commenting similarly, you know, people asking, you know, what, what happened, you know, what do I do if I fall in in the middle of a big lake in, um, you know, in spring when the water's cold? And his answer is, you die. Like, that's what happens, you know, it, it's highly likely. So you don't, you make sure you don't fall in. That's the answer. The answer isn't, what do I do when I fall in? The answer is, how do I make sure I don't fall in? Um, and so I think one of the problems with the modern world is, it sounds like an old git here, but one of the things that I see quite a lot is people wanting to somehow rationalize and mitigate all risk. You can't do that. You can't do that at home. Um, you can't do that when you're driving a vehicle. You can't do that when you are out in nature. Um, there are risks there and you can, you can mitigate them to an extent but you can't remove them entirely um, and the more experienced you are with certain risks then the better you are able to judge where the boundaries are um, but there aren't simple answers you can't suddenly go oh yeah right okay that that problem's gone away it's like again bugs is one you know bugs is one that bug, bugs me people go oh you know how do you deal with bugs it's like well 
the, the, they bite you sometimes yeah it's like if I go to the woods even here in the UK which is not particularly bug ridden by you know some people will tell you it is okay the west coast of Scotland horrible sometimes um, parts of Wales you know I've lived in Wales midges there can you know gnats can be quite annoying midges in Scotland can be highly irritating um, but in terms generally in terms of the bugs yes ticks are increasing and Lyme disease is a, is a bit of an increasing concern but it's not that you know in the grand scheme of things you know again it's it, it just displays um, how urbanized everybody's become that it's like oh you know how do I avoid getting bitten at all by a midge how do I avoid getting bitten at all by a mosquito it's very hard very hard not to ever get bitten by anything I mean there are, again there are things you can do not wearing shorts tucking your trousers into your socks you know long sleeve shirts yes okay some places you want to wear a bug suit a bug net etc but are you never going to get bitten by anything ever if you spend a lot of time outside no um, and it's similar again you know go back to Australia there are things you don't do like there's a wood pile over there right here I've got no I have no issue with just going and pulling wood off that wood pile. Would I do that in a similar situation in Australia? No, because there are things there that if they do bite me, they're going to cause me much more issue than anything that's in there. And so again, it's like, it's not how do I avoid getting wood off the wood pile? It's just, okay, how do I mitigate that risk? And yes, okay, I don't want to get bitten by a, you know, a, a redback or whatever in, you know, taking stuff off there you know off the wood pile you know little spiders related to the black widow spider it has a red hourglass on the back um i don't want to get bitten by one of those um so you wear leather gloves or, or or what what have you when you're taking your wood off the wood pile in the backyard or in the in the woods whereas i don't worry about doing that here and similarly i don't worry too much about getting bitten by a mosquito here because i'm not going to get malaria um i'm not going to get West Nile virus there's there's nothing really that's going to bother me so it's itchy yeah but I don't get too bothered but again people will still write to me and ask me questions of how do I avoid getting bitten by mosquitoes when I go camping in the UK and I'm like it's the wrong question <laughs> it's like what are the benefits of going to the woods okay you might occasionally get bitten by a mosquito but you know put some you know put some bug repellent on that isn't damaging to you you know again you know people people worry about the wrong things you know spraying yourself with extremely harsh chemicals is probably worse than getting bitten by a mosquito in the UK and um, might not be in some malarial ridden parts of the world but um, you know again it's like understanding the complexities and the nuances so that's what I'm getting at it's like there isn't a simple answer for everything all the time and yet people want it and so I think one of the things people say I talk too much on these on these shows um, but there's so much that I could say about some of these things um, because there's a lot of nuance and the more experience you get yes okay sometimes you can generalize things down to simple rules and rules of thumb and that's where we can help provide value in these type of pieces of content but also it's incumbent on us to say okay well actually this is quite complex and it's quite nuanced and it depends where you are depends what you're doing um, it depends what your experience level is all of those things is this mate you know multi-dimensional matrix of different parameters that you know that kind of constrain the answer that you're that you're coming to um, and it's not always that simple even if 
certain parts of it can be simple and so I think one of the things that comes out of spending a lot of time out in the woods spending a lot of time out in nature is that you get an intuitive understanding of these certain things what can what can you do here what can you not do there based on your experience but equally you also understand that life's not that simple um, and I'll do my best to answer the questions on these shows but the answers aren't always straightforward and the answer might not even be always what you want um, but you know that's I guess why you're asking the question so anyway um, I'm not sure that ans answered the question fully but that's the best answer I can come up with at the moment and thank you for that um, I like the range of questions that we're getting at the moment that are coming in and um, keep asking them Instagram and Twitter with a hashtag AskPaulKirtley the voicemail system on my blog just go to Ask Paul Kirtley on my blog, you'll find your way, speak pipe, just record, speak, it will record. Um, and you can email me as well as long as you make it clear that it's an Ask Paul Kirtley question. So Ask Paul Kirtley in there somewhere because basically what happens if you don't is that you send me the question, I'll look at it and go, oh that's quite a good question. And then when I come to actually search on my emails to find the questions, unless it's got Ask Paul Kirtley in there, it'll not come up in the search. Um, yes, okay, I could have a folder for them, and I do try and do that, but still, it's easier for me to find them as and when. I get a lot of emails about all sorts of things, so the, the more you make it apparent, it's an Ask Paul Kirtley question. Um, and so those are the ways you can ask questions. Um, I've got more of these coming out very soon. Um, I have amassed a fair few questions in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, because I haven't done any of these shows for a while, but the fact that I've been out teaching again, I've been writing a book etc that's been taking my time but also because I've been out teaching again and because I haven't done the Ask Paul Kirtley's for a while all the Paul Kirtley podcasts people have been telling me that they miss them people have been telling me that they've been re-listening to them during lockdowns people have been telling me that they found, found them hugely valuable and it's the stuff that people tell me but that they're missing when I don't do it that I'm going to continue doing so Ask Paul Kirtley's are definitely back and it isn't just the occasional one, they'll be back on a regular basis. Um, the Paul Kirtley podcast will be back on a regular basis. I just put one out with Teresa Camper that was recorded a little while ago. Um, that one came out and I've got others that are, have been recorded already that will come out in, um, in, in, a, in a regular sequence going forwards. And so it's something I want to get back into. I've missed doing them. Um, I've had my head in other things for a while, um, but I feel like now I've got the the kind of headspace and the, the workspace to um, to get these done again and I hope you appreciate them and if you do you know like and subscribe etc all the usual YouTube stuff if you're listening to this on a podcast remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and um, if it isn't on your favorite podcast platform if you want it on a, on a podcast platform that it isn't on because there's more and more podcast platforms all the time so if you want this or if you want the audio only of this on a um, on a platform that isn't on already like for example uh, the Paul Kirtley podcast wasn't on Spotify and so people kept pestering me in a good way to get it on Spotify and I did so anything like that just tell me and I'll do my best and um, they're, they're all available on SoundCloud as well I put both the Paul Kirtley podcast and Ask Paul Kirtley's on my SoundCloud account um, and you can just listen to them and download them from there as well so there's loads and loads of ways of consuming this and the podcast um, I'll continue to put new material on my blog as well, um, long form articles, 
uh, and shorter articles. I've got a number of things coming out there because again, um, I've missed doing that uh, as much as I was doing at one point. It got all, it all got a little bit too much at one point, particularly when I was also um, writing a book and managing the business through COVID and all this kind of stuff. It, I had to put a few things on hold for a while, but uh, now here we are back again doing these. Um, what else can I say? Buy the book, please. Um, took me a long time to write it. Books are such a bargain. Um, you get so much information for so little money and you can use it over and over and over and over and over again or you can use it as much as you want and then give it to somebody else and they can use it over and over and over and over again. Um, books are a bargain, they're fantastic. Um, they're nice to hold, they're nice to look at. Um, they are one of the ways that as a species we keep hold of our knowledge. Um, share books, not just my book, share books with people, share your favorite books with people, um, gift books, read books, and um, make the world a better place in that way. Um, that's the end of my ramble for today. Uh, if you don't like the rambles, there are five billion, million, trillion other YouTube channels elsewhere. Um, that's all. See you soon. Bye.